Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Join me, if you will, in Mark 1. Mark 1. And uh, I want to give you a moment to find your place there. Mark chapter 1, and we continue this morning in our study of this wonderful gospel. We enter into a section today here, and it's for the next few Sundays. We're going to break it down next week. The message time will be a little more brief than normal next week. And so we're going to break it down into some smaller pieces to chew on. Truth is, this is like a a biblical elephant, right? You know the old metaphor? Uh, How do you need an elephant? One bite at a time. Let's not eat any elephants, guys, okay? Uh, It's not literal. But the, the, the text in front of us is... There's a lot for us to grab a hold of, even if Mark uses few words to speak to us. The section that we're entering into, actually, today, it's it's a section on authority. We talked about that at the beginning of the service. It's, it's about authority. The authority of Jesus. Now, I want to just, I want to ask you, there's there's some some really good practical wisdom for how to listen to a message, listen to God's Word. One is an open heart. Two is an open Bible. Three, if you have it, a pen. And just to engage with God's Word, it's worthy of our effort. But as we go into the text today, let's keep in mind what what are two, if I might call them apparent contradictions, in, in Mark's text. Here's what I mean. Number one, Jesus is being portrayed in this gospel as the servant of God. Now to be clear, to be clear, He's the perfect servant, unlike any other servant. But you have to ask yourself, we're entering into a section on authority. What authority does a servant have? What authority does a servant have? But secondly, the other thing that we're trying to wrestle with, that we should wrestle with, is Jesus is also, as we saw a couple weeks ago, He's the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. He is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. And we, we, man, we dove deep into that pool. If Jesus is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased, and we have come to God through Christ, then we are the sons and daughters of God in whom God is well pleased. Isn't that the gospel? The glorious news is that God looks down at Dustin Moore for all of his messiness and says, because of Jesus, you, Son, you, in you I am well pleased. But these two ideas of servanthood, sonship, they appear to contradict each other. How is a servant in those days, how is he also a son? On top of that, in a few weeks, how is he a king? He's the perfect son, the perfect servant, the perfect king. And the truth is, we, we have to wrestle with that, but those titles are not contradictory to the person of Jesus Christ. They communicate Everything we need to know about who He is and what you and I need. Now, where we left the text last two weeks ago, because we had 
that appused with us last week, we left Jesus in the water being baptized by John the Baptist in the waters of the Jordan River. John had denied, had tried to deny Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, we were told that John, when Jesus came, John looked at him and said, I have need to be baptized of thee, and thou comest to me. John was like, no, 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 I, you should be baptizing me. I'm not baptizing you. And if you remember Jesus, he didn't need the baptism like everyone else in that day. He didn't have sins to confess. He didn't have sins that needed to be washed. So what was John, what, excuse me, what was Jesus doing? We talked about that. In his baptism, Jesus was identifying with sinners, identifying with people. And he did so in accordance with Matthew 3, verse 15, which tells us that Jesus answered John and said that basically he's like, this has to happen. You're not refusing me because I have to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is there in the waters of Jordan identifying with us, with sinners. And the moment, and this moment is necessary for the righteousness that Jesus secures for us. But after he's baptized, something incredible happened. I mean, something momentous took place there in the waters of the Jordan. We saw it in Mark 1, in verse 10. We saw the, as he's coming up out of the water, the heavens open, the Spirit descended like a dove on Jesus. There's a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And all of this, it's an incredible moment, right? Could you imagine the people that are looking on going, what's going on here? But then Mark tells us that something else immediately took place. And I need to remind you, I need to remind you that we don't get too far away from what Mark is doing here. Don't miss this. Mark has been telling us and speaking to us of a new beginning. It's a new beginning as opposed to another beginning. This new beginning in this moment shows the Father, the Son, the Spirit. It shows the, those three, the Trinity, to us like the other beginning, another beginning in Genesis chapter 1. But Mark connects what he's doing here in the text in front of us today, just two verses. He's connecting us back to Genesis and back to the Old Testament in a very profound way. And so I want to start and just launch into this by taking us right away to the, this moment of the driving of the Spirit, the driving of the Spirit. Notice with me Mark 1 and verse 12, just that first line. And immediately, immediately, if you have a pen, you have your, your marking stuff on your hand out there, underline that word immediately. Immediately, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. Immediately. Now, Jesus, the location of this, let me hone you in on this for a moment. Jesus is already in the wilderness. The Jordan River is actually in the wilderness. He's there because that's the region where John is baptizing. And Mark tells us here that immediately after the heavens open, the Spirit descends and the Father speaks. And boom! Immediately, the Spirit drives Jesus to the wilderness. When he says that, the indication is a wilderness further than where he already is. It's, if you will, it's the deep, dark, bad wilderness. 
right? If you think about it in fairy tale language, the immediately underscores the necessity of what's about to happen. The necessity of this is noted, though, in all the other Gospels. Mark just drives it even more. But in Matthew, we see these words, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness. In Luke 4, and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Mark's telling us, man, there's an immediate, this is a necessity driving him. Matthew tells us he's being led by the Spirit. Luke tells us he's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But the whole point is, the Spirit takes Jesus from the water of baptism because he has an appointment for him. There's an appointment for Jesus in the wilderness. It's interesting, though, the brevity, if you will, of Mark's narrative of the wilderness temptation. Now, if you read Mark and you're paying attention, you might read it and go, wait a minute. Mark uses two verse, two verses to tell us what Matthew uses 11. And Luke uses 13 verses. Now, don't get all caught up on the verse part of it, but it's just Mark's focus is so much more brief here. But I believe it's an important reason. He mentions the Spirit's driving work. The, he, he's mentioning in his narrative here the, uh, the, the location, the Spirit's work, the Spirit's driving, the location of the temptation, which is the wilderness. Mark mentions the tempter in the wilderness, unlike the other Gospels, calls him Satan as opposed to the devil. He also notes the duration of Jesus' time in the wilderness. Now what we need to understand is the way in which Mark is speaking of this new beginning, if you want to call it this, a new era, a new new epoch of time, a, a new day has dawned in the gospel of Jesus. I mean, the forerunner, John the Baptist, has been talked about already. Jesus is empowered by the Spirit at His baptism. And the new day dawning necessitates Jesus going into the wilderness for an appointment that has to happen. But why? Why? We're about to see here the question of will the the perfect servant serve Satan or will he serve the Father? Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Will this, listen, will this servant of God, will he follow in the steps of Adam? Will he follow in the steps of Adam? Remember, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Temptation comes in the beginning, right? Narratively, Mark is speaking and saying, I want you to be brought into the new beginning. Adam, in the beginning, faced temptation. Jesus, who Paul tells us is the second Adam, is going to face temptation. So will he bow? Will the perfect king bow to the kingdom of Satan? Will the perfect son serve a different father? Will he like Adam? Will he fail? Like every Adam, 
who came after. Is this, and here's the key question, listen, is this really a new day? Is it really a new day? Is it really a new beginning? We're about to find out. Mark's going to tell us, and there's a divine orchestration behind this moment. I don't want you to miss that. The Spirit drives. It's a divine orchestration. Jesus must go and do what others have failed to do. And hear me very carefully. You might be sitting there ready to be dismissive, but I want you to don't miss something vital to our understanding of this text. Jesus, the Son. We talked about at Christmas. Truly God, truly man. He's going to have a free choice. He's going to have a free choice, and he will be able to choose, like Adam and like us, whether he should make the Father's will his will or cave to temptation. And so what's before us now? The testing in the wilderness. The testing in the wilderness. Notice verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted of Satan. Now here we get a few aspects of this moment. I want to, if I can, I want to bring us around here, right? I want to bring you around the scriptures, the whole scriptures. And I want you to understand a few aspects of this moment. I mentioned already the location. The location. He's there in the wilderness. The length of the location, the length that the, the length of this time in the wilderness is 40 days. And I want you to see who's there and what's happening. But before we go into that, we have to, and by the way, the, the New Testament authors presuppose that we know what happened in the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. When the word, when the idea of wilderness is presented us in the New Testament, we need to be able to connect wilderness in new to wilderness in old. Here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, three key moments happened in the Old Testament. The first one is Israel wandered in the wilderness, how long? For 40 years. 40 years. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2 says, Thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee. Listen to this. Humble thee, to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. So we can walk away and say, man, God takes Israel into the wilderness to test them. So what is the testing for Jesus? I would argue it's the same thing. Second moment. In the wilderness is Moses. Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 34 tells us that Moses was there with the Lord 40 days, 40 nights. He didn't either eat bread nor drink water and he wrote upon the tables of the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses. So Israel wandered 40 years. Moses is on Mount Sinai 40 days, 40 nights. The third wilderness example of the Old Testament is by a prophet named Elijah. Elijah was led for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. 
1 Kings 19 tells us that Elijah arose and he did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto, Mount, unto Horeb, the mount of God. Now, what's going on here? I, I'm not going to lose you too much in the weeds, but in every situation here, the wilderness was a place of proving and a test of faithfulness along with the promise of deliverance. Who goes into the wilderness in the Old Testament? What does it picture? Listen. Israel is called a son. God's firstborn in Exodus 4.22. Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So the son goes in. Israel is in the wilderness for testing. The son of God in Mark 1 goes into the wilderness for testing. Moses is the one who leads Israel from bondage. He's a rescuer, a deliverer, a servant of God. He is a picture, if you will, of the Lord Jesus. But Moses in the wilderness fails. Moses comes down from the, from the mount, breaks the tablets. Moses strikes the rock in the wilderness and, 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 and is disobedient, never gets to go in the promised land. Moses, the picture of Christ, he fails in the wilderness. Elijah the prophet. Elijah and the prophet is the one who confronts an idolatrous Israel, but he's unable, listen, he's unable to overcome the weight of his ministry and the sin of the people. He can't bear it. Listen, I don't mean this in a negative way. Scripture tells us it's too heavy for him. It drives him into depression. Depression is not a failure, but the point is Elijah being unable to bear the weight in the wilderness. All of these situations prove the inability and the failures of these. Israel, the son who fails when tempted. Moses, when facing the wilderness, sinned and disobeying, making him un unable to enter the promised land. So what is Mark showing us in this new beginning? Jesus goes into the wilderness to pass the test. To prove his faithfulness. The evidence that he is greater than Elijah. He can bear the weight of sin without himself sinning. So to do all that, listen, to do all that, what is necessary, don't miss this, it's necessary that Jesus must face his adversary head on. Head on. The Spirit drives him. Jesus is led. Why? He is going to go head on with his adversary. His adversary is the tempter. Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke, excuse me, call him the devil, but Mark calls him Satan. Satan literally means adversary. And so in this narrative, the title denotes him, this Satan, as the personal enemy, the personal adversary of God, the one who has been seeking to dethrone God, to derail his kingdom since the beginning. And now, if he can disrupt God's purpose through the Son, Satan will have finally won. And this temptation that comes at Jesus comes at a moment unlike any other. Here's what you got to understand. Jesus is not confronted on his best day. Jesus is not confronted like Elijah after having eaten the bunch and now he's sustained for 40 days. Jesus is at his, if I may say it, his humanly lowest. Luke 4 tells us being 40 days tempted of the devil. In those days he did eat nothing. And they, when they were ended afterward, he hungered. The picture is the 
spiritual onslaught of Satan to Jesus. He's hungry. Secondly, it comes in the wilderness. I mentioned it's the deep wilderness. It's brutally hot. At night, it's extremely dark. It's lonely. He is hungry. Now listen, listen. Jesus isn't just hungry like you and me after a long day. Some of you get a little bit hangry in the evening, don't you? That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, it's been a long day at work, so I need something to eat. Jesus is on the verge of malnourishment, of starvation, of a human body breaking down by not eating anything for 40 days. And this whole time, he's not eating, Luke tells us, and Mark seems to indicate that Jesus is not only fasting and not eating, he is being beaten up spiritually. A spiritual onslaught. And I would add, you might face temptation, so you go, I get it. No, you don't. You don't get temptation like this. Because you're not the son of God. The temptation that you and I face is a drop in the bucket compared to what Jesus is feeling in this moment. Not a temptation to sin. There's not a desire of Jesus to give up. It's the spiritual pressure coming at him. All of hell coming at him. And from this moment, from this moment, he's alone other than an interesting note that's not made in the other gospel accounts of the temptation in Mark 1.13, tells us he's with the wild beasts. These aren't cute little, you know, labradoodles on Instagram. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? We're talking about wild beasts. Most people believe that Mark put it in there to tell us this. Not only is a spiritual assault from Satan and his demons, but Satan has turned animals against Jesus. His creation is now after him. This idea is noted so that we can get the weight of this. You might be wondering, what's the objective here? What's Satan's objective? Listen very carefully. Aiken tells us, Danny Aiken tells us very profoundly, Satan's goal, listen, Satan's one goal is he wanted Jesus not to suffer. What do you mean by that? Satan's goal in the wilderness was to keep Jesus from suffering on the cross. Let me give it to you like this. The war in the wilderness was about Satan conquering the Son of God so the Son of God would not conquer Satan. And we say it in another way. Satan's goal in the wilderness was to conquer the Son. So the Son would not conquer Satan. But what you and I know and what the text is going to tell us is Satan failed. He failed. So Mark doesn't note what happens, but I want you to consider quickly with me what happens here. 
there's three mo moments of temptation. I'm just going to fly over them. The first temptation is one of self-gratification. Self-gratification. He comes to Jesus who's hungry and he says, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. A hungry Christ is faced with what seemed to be harmless, a harmless temptation. But hear me, Jesus had come to do the, the will of the Father, not His will. And not the will of Satan, for sure. So Jesus says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. See, this temptation about food and self-gratification sounds awfully similar, doesn't it, to what happened in the garden. It's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And Satan said, if God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden, by asking a question and bringing up temptation of something to eat, the point here is the temptation of Jesus was for him in, in this physical weak moment to, to seek to provide for his own needs apart from the Father, from what the Father had provided. Jesus' response was basically to say, it is better, listen, it is better that I starve than to be fed something outside of the Father's will. There's a good implication for us in that. It is better that you and I lack everything in this world than to live contrary to the will of the Father. The second temptation is one of self-protection. Self-protection in Matthew chapter 4, the devil taking them up to a holy city, into the holy city, and set them on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. I want you to see a picture. It's the best picture I can give you of the temple. This is the southeast corner of the temple in Jerusalem. And you look that way, you go down the Kidron Valley, the, the Mount of Olives is to the left over there, which is kind of off screen. But who knows what Satan does here, whether he teleports Jesus to the temple. This is not the top of the temple. That temple is behind us there. The wall's behind us. He takes him up there and he says, listen, throw yourself down, possibly to this location. These are the, the steps, the southeast steps. Throw yourself down because God said that he'll, he'll, uh, he'll, bear, he'll send his angels to, to bear you up, to help you, to clean you up, to put you back together. I mean, why don't we test God? That's what he's saying to Jesus. And Jesus is like, it's written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but this is about, listen, Satan's really good at manipulating Scripture. He wants to force you to prove God's presence and promises. But Jesus had no reason to test the Father. Why? Because he was resting in the unshakable security of God. He didn't need to test God. And by the way, Neither do you and I. Thirdly, the temptation, self-exaltation. devil takes him up to an exceeding high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, the glory of them, and saith unto them, all these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. You see the, the temple picture there? Jesus is looking out and going, man, look at all this. Satan says, listen, here's the point of this. Don't miss this. You're already a king. Why suffer? You're already a king, Jesus. Just take what's out there and you get to do it without dying. Remember? I just don't want you to suffer the cross. Jesus, you're a king. Have it all. 
You get it all without what God wants you to do. Mark summarizes and ends all this by just saying this. And remember, he doesn't give us the temptations. He concludes his time in verse 13 and says, and the angels ministered unto him. What was Mark doing by skipping all that and coming to this? Mark is fast-forwarding and simply saying in this moment, the Son of God passed the test in the wilderness, proving himself to be the perfect son, the perfect servant, and the perfect king. And hear me, friends, listen. This is the great part about it. Truly, a new day has dawned. Adam failed. Adam failed the temptation in the garden. Jesus comes and truly a new beginning has come. So we ask the question, has a new beginning actually come? The temptation in the wilderness, the fact that Jesus wins in the wilderness is a reminder to you and I that a new beginning in Christ actually has come. Where Adam failed, Jesus is fruitful. Where Israel was unsuccessful, Jesus is successful. Where Moses lost, Jesus won. Where Elijah was unable, Jesus was able. And so friends, in Christ, this is the beauty of this moment. The encouragement for us is a new beginning has come. Victory, perfect servanthood, promise, hope, fulfillment. Mark says, listen, it's here. It's here. Mark wants his readers to get this right away. Now, say all that. I've come to this conclusion with a couple considerations from Mark's narrative. And maybe some observations in this as well. But maybe you're sitting here, listen, maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, I get it, man. Dustin, I, I get it. Jesus went in the wilderness. He suffered. And maybe you truncate your view of it. Maybe you, maybe you listen to what I'm saying. You're going, yeah, but like, that can't be that hard for Jesus. I think we could argue that point. You might be sitting here going, I'm just trying to survive February in Chicago. Right? I'm trying to walk down the sidewalk without wiping out. I'm trying to deal with the frustration of scraping my windshield every morning. Go to work when it's cold. To just pay my bills, to, to keep my... What does this... What am I supposed to do with this? Thanks for asking. Let me tell you one. And this might be hyper simple, but hyper simple is good for us. The temptation of Jesus shows us the reality of the already but not yet. What do we mean? Already but not yet. Here's what we mean. The new beginning has started when Jesus, in Mark's gospel, the beginning has started. And when Jesus is tempted, but that new beginning isn't fully realized until the resurrection. At the same time, you and I, listen, you and I live on the other side of the resurrection. Jesus has already been raised. And sometimes it feels like we're in the wilderness of life. Right? Are you with me? Am I the only one? feels like the wild animals are out to get me too. And the onslaught, the spiritual onslaught is coming. I mean, like, I'm battling temptation every day, every single day. I feel like, man, like people are, spiritual darts are being fired at me and I'm trying to dodge them and fight them. And on top of that, 
On top of that, listen, it's a spiritual famine out there, guys. It's exhausting out there. It's overwhelming out there. You don't feel all that victorious. You feel like you're getting run over every day by the human depravity around us on top of, if you're honest, the depravity of your own heart. So here we are in this already. And here's what I mean. You're in church and I'm telling you a new beginning has dawned, but out there, it doesn't feel like it. It's the wilderness. My marriage is getting attacked. My kids are getting attacked. My finances are getting attacked. My health is getting attacked. I'm living day to day. And you're telling me a new day has dawned? The temptation in the wilderness tells us that even Jesus entered into a new day and was willing to engage suffering. He's doing that telling you and I in the already but not yet. I have gone through everything if not more than you. I get it. I am a high priest who understands your temptation. So, here we are. And it forces us to look at the adversary in a couple ways as we consider the already but not yet. Let me bring you a couple practical things here. Can I just tell you this? Satan can only offer you partial glory. Satan can only offer you partial glory. Greater glory is available in God's will and full glory awaits all of us here in Christ. What do I mean by that? Can I give you a practical example? that I chose knowing our children were downstairs today. Listen very carefully. Let me give it to you in the context of marriage for a moment. Are you with me? Y'all look like you're about to get hungry in the wilderness. Stay with me. I'll be, I'll be quick here. Sex is a beautiful gift from God to be enjoyed within the confines of biblical marriage between a man and a woman. Sex outside of marriage is a sin against your own body and against God's will, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Sex inside of biblical marriage is God's will, and it is honorable to the God who gave it to us. But listen, sex inside of biblical marriage is just a signpost of a greater pleasure to come in God's presence in the new creation. Here's what I don't want you to miss. Satan comes and says, you need this. He comes to single adults and says, you need this. And we go, yeah. What we fail to realize is there's no glory in this outside of God's will. But Satan comes and he brings the temptation. Then when you become a married adult, you tend to think, well, I'm just going to make everything in my marriage about this. But you realize that it's only a partial glory even inside of marriage. It shows you the beauty of God. It shows you the wisdom of God. But it's ultimately driving you to see that there's a greater pleasure to come when our lives are no longer tainted by sin. And so this is the picture here. And Satan comes and says, hey, you want some glory? You want some pleasure? You want some fun? And he offers it to Jesus as well. He brings Jesus' temptation to self-gratification. But what do we get from this? We realize that Satan can only offer us a failed glory. Jesus offers us now in the already but not yet a partial glory and tells us there's greater glory to come. See, I don't want you to miss that. 
Because that's what it means to live in the already but not yet. To enjoy good things, but don't make those good things God things. Because they're only driving you to anticipate a greater glory that is coming in the new creation. Satan's really good about this. He, he tries to offer you something and say, man, if you have this, Satan approaches, his approaches to temptations don't really change. We could probably argue that. He's not complicated. He uses God's words to manipulate them. He's deceptive. He shows you good things. He tries to make you worship those good things, to make your life all about things. The temptation reminds us, too, that Satan is what Scripture says he is. He's a serial murderer, literally. He's a murderer. That's what John's gospel told us. He's a liar. He's the consummate liar. He can't even tell you the truth. Not at all. Even when he tells you God's truth, it's, it's a lie because he manipulates it. And one of my favorite ways to remind you about Satan is he's an absolute loser, okay? He's a murderer, he's a liar, he's a loser. And Jesus, Jesus knows who he is. It'd be good for us in the already but not yet to remember who Satan is. But also to remember that that Satan has been defeated. He has no power outside of what God has permitted and Christians allow. And as, as Jesus does, my encouragement to all of us today is to resist Satan. James said, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Can I encourage you this week? Even if sometimes you feel like a child, when temptation comes, just look at Satan and go, like, you are a loser. Get away from me. By the power of the Spirit who came on Jesus, you too, by the Spirit, the Word can resist the schemes of Satan. This is the already but not yet. It's that we are in the wilderness of this life and Satan is coming to us and he's presenting partial glories. He's trying to convince us to live our lives pursuing things outside of God's will. And so where is it that we are to find hope in the already but not yet? Here's where I conclude today quickly. Breathe with me for a moment. Jesus' victory paves the way for a new people to enjoy a new beginning and to await the new creation. Listen, stay with me. Let me say that again. Jesus' victory paves the way for a new people to enjoy a new beginning and to await the new creation. Can I give it to you like this, and then I'll give you a couple illustrations. It's Jesus who goes in the wilderness. Listen. And in dawning of this new day, Jesus goes and he's out there for 40 days, listen, for spiritually starving people. He's in the wilderness for spiritually starving people. He's in the wilderness for exhausted people. He's in the wilderness for those, listen, for those of us who feel like we always lose to Satan. He's in the wilderness for us. For you and for me. 
I'm going to argue that Jesus is not just in the wilderness. And you might be going, yes, there's a, there's a pattern for us in this. No, no, no. If you want to make this all about a pattern, here's, here's what I'll tell you. You will always fail. Jesus is not going to the wilderness to say, let me give Dustin Moore three steps to overcome temptation. Jesus goes in the wilderness for me because I don't succeed when I have to battle temptation. Jesus goes in the wilderness for my spiritually starving soul. He goes in the wilderness for my exhaustion. When I feel like the wilderness of life, even the animals are out to get me, Jesus is there for me, for you. That's why. You have two ways to read this text. You can first make it about you, or you can second of all, which is what I believe Scripture is calling us to do, make it about Jesus. He's in the wilderness for us. What is he doing? He's buying and paving the way for a new people to enjoy a new beginning and await the new creation. Do you know what this life is like? Listen, the already but not yet is like my family was for the past year. Let me explain. This past November, most of you know, I've referenced it, I think, constantly because of the text. Listen, my family, all six of us, somebody paid for us to go to Israel. They paid for the trip a year before it happened, over a year before it happened. We knew we were going. We knew it was coming. We knew what we were going to see and do. But we waited. And we waited. And the trip wasn't easy. I mean, we got, man, we got, we missed a connection flight in London. We lost our luggage. We got to Israel exhausted from being up for, for 25 hours. We were beat up. We looked rough walking into the hotel. Until, in, in, until, in Jerusalem, excuse me. But when we got there, it was all worth it. All the waiting and wandering and, 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 and traveling and, and, and getting left in an airport and trying to get on another plane and trying to find luggage. You go, yeah, don't complain. You're in Israel. No, no, in that moment, we're complaining. You would be too. But hear me. It's not even like that. That's an insufficient illustration. Insufficient. But the point is, somebody paid for us. And we waited. And we waited. And that's what Christians are today. Somebody has paid for you to enjoy another land, a new creation. And you and I wait. And we suffer. And we struggle. But the difference is, listen, the difference is, because of Jesus Christ, you, if you are in Christ, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, listen to me very carefully. You are a card-carrying member of the new creation. I mean, you have your passport. That passport has been paid by Christ, and mine is stamped with, not really stamped, but it's something from Israel. It's stamped Athena, or Athens, Greece, 
But ultimately, that passport says that I am a citizen of the United States of America. They can cancel my flight. They can refuse to pay for my hotel costs. They can make me sit and wait at an airport, but they can't keep me from my home. Why? Because this says I belong to a different country. I belong to a different country. They can make my life frustrating as I travel. They can strand me in airports. They can leave me in countries where I don't feel like I'm a part of this place. I can suffer. I can struggle. I can be hungry. I can be needy. I can face temptation. But the te- the, the passport that you have as a Christian is you are part of the new creation. And there is a day coming. And so, you might sit there and think, but I'm suffering. And here's the truth. Jesus comes underneath and with great mercy and grace. And ultimately, His suffering on the cross becomes your spiritual nourishment. And I mentioned earlier, the gospel is like, like oxygen. That you just, wow, I can take another step. I can go further. I can make this, I can put effort into my marriage, into my child rearing. This job, wow, Jesus is enough to give me the grace to go further. Because Jesus goes into the wilderness for us. He empowers us to live in the wilderness of this life. There's only one thing worse than the wilderness. Listen, and I finish. There's one thing worse than the wilderness, and that is living in the wilderness of this life with all the wild animals out there and all the suffering and all the struggles and all the hardship and the death and pain. It's to go into the wilderness alone. Listen to me very carefully. Jesus went into the wilderness alone so that you don't have to. If you're here today, and you are trying to live your life apart from a Savior named Jesus. You are trying to survive this world alone. And God never intended it to be that way. So what's the answer? The answer is to come to Jesus. You're a sinner who needs a Savior. I was a sinner. I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And you do too. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, the gospel invites you to come to Christ. That's the good news. For all of you who have come to Christ this week, remind yourself you're just awaiting another country. That's your home. And that's good news. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.